Welcome to the Cracking Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm Anna, editor at TICE, a leading site for cybersecurity decision makers and enthusiasts alike. This week, we are talking with Naaman Hart, a UK-based threat hunter for the cybersecurity company Digital Guardian. The role of the threat hunter is a fairly new one within the industry, and on this episode, Naaman discusses the ins and outs of what the job entails, as well as how he hunts for, investigates, and quarantines a number of threats on enterprise networks. Naaman also reveals the biggest malware trends he's seeing at the moment. I'll be back at the end of the podcast with a cyber treat this week, but first, here is the interview with Naaman. So what do you do day to day and what sort of tools are you using? So for threat hunting, it's a bit of a mixture of things. Obviously, we have our own product that gives us a fair, gives us a fair bit of insight, but um, a lot of the tools are inbuilt. A lot of the things are, are there ready for the, the taking, really. Um, for example, uh, a lot of people will have worked with, obviously, Windows and the event logs and things like that for years, but they might not necessarily know how much information you can glean from that. Um, so there's there's things like the, the end-to-user hive, which... Not only does it store, um, you know, user information related to their username when they log in, domains, etc., like that, it also records all USB devices that were ever plugged in, uh, any printers that were mapped, things like that. So you can build a decent forensic picture from all the inbuilt information that's already there. Um, other things, there's the master file table uh, that includes information of every file that's ever been written to the system, how it was written, when it was written, etc. So again, quite a lot of metadata that you can use to figure out what's going on. Um, last one, the shim cache. So the shim cache again records a lot of information related to the how, the when, the where things got there, right? Um, and through going through these these things and just pulling that raw information, all you have to do is pop it through a few uh, third-party free tools, and it gives you a decent timeline of things that have happened on that machine. So the 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 idea behind threat hunting is that you can do this with a lot of uh, freeware tools and a lot of information that's already there. But if you go and get an additional product or something like that, it makes your job easier. So it depends on whether you want to write a lot of this yourself or whether you want to depend on a tool that's written it for you. So tell me, how do you interact with these tools? What are your tasks from day to day? So, so in, in terms of... And what are you looking for? So it's, it's a bit of a... There's a, a kind of a difference of opinion sometimes between what a security analyst looks at. You've got a screen presented to you um, that essentially is is set up and filtered to give you particular information. Now, if you look at the traditional analyst, they're going to go through that screen and they're going to have a look at all that information and the, the big ticket items are going to scream red at them, right? They're going to go, bing, 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 we've, we've got a winner. And they will go and assess whether that's a false positive or not and, and maybe escalate that or deal with it, whichever you know process they're following. Whereas for threat hunting, you're actually looking for things that are uncommon, outliers. So instead of going through a thousand different alerts and saying this one you know is, is the most critical of those thousand, you're actually looking for the things that don't scream at the, at the monitor. You're looking for things that have run once and, and might be really obscure. So you can use much the same tools to find what's going on, but the way you drill into the data is much less obvious. And that's where the, the troubleshooting methodology comes in. Because you have, to, you have to phrase your query around, what would I be doing if I was actually trying to, say, infiltrate a, a, a corporate network? I'm not going to be hitting it a thousand times with the most common tools available. I'm going to be doing something really obscure. And to do something obscure, you're going to be running individual commands once, as an example. So instead of looking for the really common commands and, uh, say, you know, MD5 hashes that are known to everyone and, and IOCs that are known to everyone. You want to be looking at 
give me all the commands that happened and give me only the ones that happened once or twice or three times. And you start out with them. And you can, you can tell with experience that that's going to be a malicious command or not. And so can you give me an example of like a threat you've discovered which was quite exciting? Or... Yeah, I'll give you one we did as a, as a company. Yeah, there's quite a few of us involved in it. Um, it, was, it was actually something that we hadn't deployed our product into. We went to a company... And while we were deploying our product, we just flagged up a few utilities that were malicious. Um, and the, the question was, how did they get there? And we said, well, usually if, if our product's been there for a long period of time, we would have that timeline built up and it'd be quite easy to tell, but we didn't. So what we did is we scraped all the machines for all this information that I was telling you about earlier. So using, using uh, essentially freeware tools and information already available in the system, we grabbed all that data so the Shimcash into user hives, the master file tables, and we smashed it all into a log-to-timeline tool. So it essentially took all those logs, put them all in a timeline, and we were able to go back two-plus years and figure out that an individual had started off um, basically teaching himself to code. So it's been an individual that was employed at the company uh, was still there at the time where, where we got involved, and he'd started learning out, uh, learning uh, sorry, and teaching himself to code and to um, script in PowerShell, he then started downloading keyloggers and things like that, recorders, um, webcam recorders, etc. And he'd started installing these on his own machine and seeing how they interact and things like that. Over time, he'd actually moved these onto about 10 other employees' machines and he'd started recording their, their passwords that were typed in, you know, taking random screenshots of what they were doing on their machine, recording the webcam, etc. And he hadn't really acted on that. But he'd moved that little uh, attack mechanism that he developed himself and taught himself how to do onto all his colleagues' machines. So over time, he could have blackmailed them. He could have done anything he wanted. Um, but it's, it's through using those, those tools and that information available, we were able to go back to them and go, you've actually got someone quite malicious here, and they're not an outside threat. They're an insider. Um, and, yeah, they acted on it. To my knowledge, he was sacked, and they pursued him through court. But, um, yeah. So. But did he actually do anything nefarious? Well, Nefarious is, is starting out to do it in the first place, right? Um, so you can clearly show intent there, um, whether whether he then acted on that or not. I mean, the the act of moving a keylogger and things to someone's machine is misuse of, of, uh, of IT equipment anyway. Um, but, uh, yeah, whether someone came, came forward or comes forward afterwards and says, this guy was actually blackmailing me, we don't know. But, uh, yeah, it is. It, I mean, it's Nefarious to begin with, isn't it? So. And what's the greatest threat you're seeing at the moment? Is it the insider threat? No, if, if I'm honest, it's it's uh, what I would call them is cheap and dirty threats. Um, so things like ransomware, um, things like uh, DDoS as a service, stuff like that. That's that's the most common, and it's it's very cheap and easy for a group um, of individuals or even a, as a private enterprise to to hire these things, target a number of individuals um, through well-established techniques. And just siphon off, I don't know, 50 quid per person, that kind of thing. So at scale, you earn quite a lot of money. And ultimately, a lot of this is about money. So I'd say the biggest threat, both to companies and to your average consumer, is how easy these tools are becoming available. So to give you an example, DDoS as a service. You're an individual company. Say you open a coffee shop. Now, down the road, there's an existing coffee shop. They start losing a lot of business. They don't particularly like the fact that you're there. And a lot of your market is, or sorry, your marketing is generated from your website. So they don't want your website to be there. You can rent a service that will just knock that website offline for a week. So it's quite detrimental to your business. You have no idea why that's happening. 
if you're lucky, you're signed up to a, a decent service provider that might have some protection against that, might be able to track it back. But really, you're talking about going to the police, then they go to GCHQ, and they try and track this back. That's a lot of effort just for the fact that someone had a personal vendetta against you. So we're seeing a lot of that. And is, is that has that increased recently or it's over time? Over time, yeah. Yeah, it's been growing over the last few years. Um, I mean, ransomware as a service is much the same. But usually that's, uh, say, let's say criminal groups without the, the technical expertise to do it themselves rent that service from someone else. So someone's already written their particular package of, of ransomware. They've got a deployment mechanism. Maybe they've got a bunch of botnets under their control that can deliver this. And uh, you essentially uh, just farm that service out. So they will, they will say to one criminal group with the tool, will say to another one, um, yeah, you rent this from us. We'll guarantee you, I don't know, a million a month, something like that in, in income from it. Um, but essentially it's, uh, it's going to be you that's footing the bill for, for the setup, et cetera. Um, so that's, that's one I see as, as being more common recently. Um, you have big high-ticket items like obviously the NHS being done by by, uh, by ransomware um, and and other organisations, and and they know for the most part that they're going to get a say a high level of um, delivery. So they're going to get a lot of lot of hits with something like that. Um, so it's yeah, it's just quick and easy money for them. What do you like most about your job? Um, probably the ever-changing nature. Um, I mean, I'm I'm always uh, trying to learn a bit more about what I do and, and just the the industry in general, and I think security is something that is changing very very rapidly. So you you have the old school approach of you know compliance and auditing and things like that, and then the the more new school approach of, of threat hunting and these new roles that are springing up, and uh, that that dynamism around it is is what keeps me interested. How does a threat hunter differ to a pen tester? So um, you, you could argue that that a threat hunter could could be a pen tester as well. It depends on whether you've got that, you know, in your in your toolkit and whether you're doing that, say, internally. But a, a pen tester, in, in my mind, is typically someone external that comes in to, to test from an external um, place your your infrastructure and your security. Um, and what they what they're looking to do is break in now. As a, as a threat hunter, you probably want to be doing the same thing. You want to be testing from outside in. But you have a lot of inherent knowledge about your environment that a pen tester doesn't have. So a good pen tester should be able to break something that, that you don't know about, right? Um, and, and for them to do that, they need a certain amount of knowledge about what they're testing. But really, you want, you want them to just be, I don't know, the, the kid in the playground that just has a crack at everything until they break it, right? So whereas if you're internal... You already know your weaknesses, so you're going to focus on them and potentially miss another one because you just aren't testing everything. So that's the difference for me. And can anyone be a threat hunter? I think so, yeah. Yeah, if you've got the, if you've got the right kind of, um, uh, let's say, aptitude for it and, um, and I'd, I would say a troubleshooting mind. Um, yeah, tell me more about the skills and, and what do you mean by aptitude? Yeah, so... Um, as I was saying, my background, I come from a, being a sysadmin, um, but I see a lot, of, a lot of kids these days are getting recruited straight out of university, straight into threat hunting teams and straight into anal- uh, analyst teams. And the, the kind of the university approach or the, the straight out of school approach would be get someone with a computer science degree, get someone with, well, frankly, any degree, but they have a, they have a, a brain that's geared towards problem solving. 
So you, you hammer away at something long enough and you're going to find either a, a different way of doing it or you're going to find the solution to the problem. So you typically see with a threat hunting team, the way they come about is you get a few sysadmins, typical IT support type people, you cross-train them in security, or you get people that have come straight out of university where they've done a security degree or something like that and cross-train them into IT. You don't have to have everyone be you know, ultra good at everything. They just have to have enough of a, a mindset of, I want to go out there and find that problem um, to be able to dig deeper. Um, you, do, you do tend to find, um, if you look at organizations, they, they typically start out with analysts, which is, as I said, just looking at the, the green screen and, and uh, waiting for alerts. And then they have to make a very clear, uh, let's say, change in approach to move them into being threat hunters. Because it's it's not look at this alert and look at this common pattern and assess it. It's go and work under your own steam and go find something new. And it's it's very, very different. So I'd say bringing people in and making them analysts for a year or two, it's not an amazingly interesting job. But then when you allow them that jump into threat hunting, it's very, very interesting. You can work under your own steam. You're allowed a lot more let's say, uh, power to go and have a look at things. Um, and for the most part, you know, you, you can't go and have a look at those things without the right kind of permissions and access. So you're given a, a level of trust and you can have a certain amount of impact on that company. Um, so those roles are, are very interesting. They're interesting, they're sought after, and I think that keeps people um, motivated. And we're seeing more of our day-to-day tasks being automated yeah. Do you think the role of the threat hunter will exist as it is now in the, in the, in the future? Um, so, so automation great, greatly helps threat hunting. It does because um, if you if you write your if you write your query that goes off and finds your obscure thing, then what you want to do is repeat that same query across your entire environment, as an example. And that that is something that just wouldn't be possible unless you were able to automate it and, and do it at scale. Um, what I would say though is is troubleshooting and let's say personal experience can't be replaced by automation so someone and, and this is why a, sorry to segue here but this is why a, a threat hunting team from different backgrounds is very important um, because everyone looks at things in a different way and um, that's how you find the obscurity and, and the really weird stuff that shouldn't be there um, is, is mostly through experience and um, through people looking at things in a different way now I don't think if if automation comes back to someone designing an automated process, right, that individual is going to design it the way that they would have done it, and everyone's going to then run with it forever after. That then discounts all the personal experience and the different hands and, and heads that can be coming together to look at that problem. So I don't think automation is a, is a threat to threat hunting, quite honestly. I think it's a threat to a lot of the old-school analyst jobs, because all they're doing at a certain stage is saying, give me the, the high criticality alert and then address it in this way. A lot of that can be automated. There's still a, a lot of experience and things that can be added in there that still provide human value. Um, but uh, no, I don't see it being a risk to threat hunting at all, really. More than likely, you'll see threat hunters designing new automation strategies through their own experience rather than being replaced by automation. So certain portions of their job that can be automated will go away and they'll just design those iterative layers. And so the other threat hunters that you work with, what sort of backgrounds are they from? Various. Um, so quite a few that have come from being analysts um, at yeah, your, your typical like uh, firms like Deloitte, PwC, places like that that tend to recruit people straight out of uni. Um, clever people, very clever people. 
um, have a bit of a security and troubleshooting mind to them and, and find their, their way into threat hunting teams. Um, then we have people that have been cross-trained from being sysadmins, so that's myself, a, a few others that work for us in the US. Um, you've got your old-school compliance people that have come from the the typical compliance background, auditing. Uh, they might have worked for pen testing firms, not even technical, um, but have a good head for security. And you kind of mix all these people together in a team, and some are more apt for management, some more apt for threat hunting, some for, for analytics, um, and you work collaboratively together. Um, so so that's typically how, how a, a, a team is built out. And we're told there's a cyber skills gap. Yeah. What are your thoughts on bridging it? And do you actually think it's as, as big as we're told? It's, it's potentially as big as we're told. I, I think there's a there's a large amount of jobs going and not enough people to fill them. So that's you know typical definition of a skills gap, right? But you don't necessarily have to hire the perfect candidate to, to start building out a threat hunting team. Everyone seems to want to hire a, um, let's say, a, a proven expert in the field. And this is something that's, that's quite funny to me. You see in recruitment, um, a new technology exists for two years and recruitment firms start advertising for someone with 10 years' experience in it. Threat hunting is predominantly a new thing. Um, it might be a new name for a, a old method of, of analysis and, and, and looking for threats, but it is predominantly fairly new. Um, so when you're looking to build out teams, a lot of people are saying, you know, I want someone with 10 years threat hunting experience to help us build out a team and an operation and blah, blah, blah. They're doing that because they don't really know what they want. But you probably have a fair few people internally already within your business that are capable of doing that function. So whether they're, they're IT support people that you could just cross-train in security, whether they're security people that you could cross-train in, in IT, you've probably already got some decent people. Um, what a lot, of, uh, a lot of companies need to be doing is looking at your, again, you've probably already got security analysts, looking at those people and seeing whether they can cross-train them into being threat hunters and allow them a bit more freedom in how they work. And what they'll probably find is those people will be much happier to work for them as well because they're given more responsibility, a bit of free reign, and they're doing an interesting job. And they can self-start, especially for, for, let's say, my generation, millennials. Everyone likes to make an impact. So you give them a job where they are fundamentally making an impact and they're, they're figuring things out as they go. And that's probably how you build a, a good team now. Um, coming back to the the skills gap, yes, there's people, if you look at the market, that don't identify themselves as threat hunters. So you've got that you've got that gap of, if I advertise for a threat hunter, am I going to get anyone? But that's also due to people not applying because they don't currently see themselves as a threat hunter. That's where I'm saying it, it's almost a responsibility of companies that want threat hunters and want to stand up this initiative to look at what they've got and see if they can convert some people that will immediately start changing the market so that there is more people available because they'll start seeing themselves as a threat hunter and they'll be able to move around. So if you were to write a job description now of the threat hunter, how would you go about it? It's tricky. It's very, it's very tricky because you can interview someone that, you know, in your mind has no technical capability for the job, but they might, let's say they, they might have the right kind of uh, persona to be a, a great uh, troubleshooter and to be a great threat hunter because of the way they analyze problems. Um, so the persona would be an ana- analytical person? Yeah, an analytical person, someone that looks at something with logic, um, someone that can look at uh, something obvious and see the obscure in it. Um, 
a questioning mind, I would say, as well. So someone that looks at something and doesn't take it as given but questions why it exists or, or why it is the way it is. Um, even you look at people typically in businesses and, and you have people that will follow the status quo and deal with a, a situation the exact same way because it's always been documented to be that way. Then you have that one person that will go into that and say, this is a bit silly, why don't we do this in a better way? It's that person. It's that person that questions it and says, why is this thing the way it is? And the answer is always, oh, we've always done it that way. You want that person to then have the drive to say, well, why don't we change it? That's the person you're after. So trying to advertise for those people is is a little bit tricky. Um, but as I said, you can take kind of two routes to it. You take the the entry-level people straight out of uni that have a, a bit of an interest in IT and security, and you can, you can train them up. Um, or you take the old-school sysadmins and you convert them over to security. That's typically how I do it. And so anybody who resonates with that description, you know, curious and, and kind of likes to problem solve, um, what advice do you give to them about the skills they should be working on and developing? So 100% learning to code. That's one of the really? one of the main ones, yeah. yeah. So if you can code or script, you don't have to be amazing at it. You don't have to be a programmer because jobs exist for programmers, right? Um, but just the ability to write little tools that make your life easier is quite a good step. Because a lot of the information that you're presented with is going to be, let's say, bulky and maybe a little bit obscure to begin with, and you need to be able to crunch through that. You can't be effective as a threat hunter or even an analyst unless you can take the massive amounts of information that you're going to be thrown at, or sorry, that's going to be thrown at you, um, and convert it into something usable. And it helps to be able to do little scripts and little tasks uh, in an automated fashion. Um, so programming is very helpful. Um, and if somebody is a bit concerned that the that programming and coding is too technical, what would you say? So, so I would I would say yes, yes, it is technical. Now I wouldn't even call myself a programmer or even an adept coder. I, I get by based on on skills that I've picked up over time, and you remember things that are helpful. You don't have to be amazing at coding, and and I would say there is a. There's a big fear of getting into coding and, and people see it as a very you know, technical thing. Um, but you don't have to be amazing. If you've got the right kind of, um, again, you know, aptitude for questioning, then you'll go and find your way uh, onto, onto Google or something like that and you'll, you'll figure out how to write a little script that makes your life easier. Um, it's, it's tenacity rather than ability, I think. Um, and that's probably true of all learning. If you try something enough, you'll get good at it. Um, and again, you don't have to be amazing. You really don't. So you just have to be able to make your own life easier. And you said that the reward comes in, in feeling that you've made an impact. Yeah. Um, just tell me a bit about that impact that you feel you've made. Yeah, so um, it's, it's coming to the end of a, end of a problem. That's, that's the biggest sense of reward for me. Um, I mean, in, in typical IT, you might have troubleshooted an issue for, say, three weeks, something like that. And there's, there's no information online on it. You've come to the end of all your sources. You're discussing this with your colleagues, and they all go, yeah, don't know, we're stumped. And maybe you know, you're having a shower in the morning, and you just think, oh, maybe if I tried it in this different way, and you find your, you find your way out of that problem. And it could be as, as simple as like little tick boxes, little flip switches that, that fix your issue. But it's, it's knowing how difficult it was to go through that procedure to get there that gives you a massive sense of accomplishment when you eventually solve it. And it's, it's the same with threat hunting. You go through a lot of data and a lot of what-ifs and they amount to nothing. But then that one you find that is quite important, that's something sitting there as a little backdoor in the background, 
and if it ever got used properly, it could cause some serious damage. And finding those little those little items um, gives you a lot of sense of achievement. So you can go back to your bosses and say, hey, look what I found, and they go, well done, well done you. <laughs> a big thank you to Naaman Hart, Threat Hunter at Digital Guardian. And now, this week, instead of a cyber tip, we have a cyber joke. Wait for it. Why did the cyber criminal retire? He just couldn't hack it anymore. Definitely one worth repeating at the pub this weekend. I am sure you'll agree. That's all we have time for on this episode. Please do rate and review our programs. We really do appreciate it. You can do that on iTunes when you have a moment. And please let us know your suggestions for future shows and ideas via at Tice on Twitter. For now, it's bye from us. 